0: Welcome to A Short History of Symmetry, a series of podcasts from the University of Warwick. In this episode, Professor Ian Stewart describes how the scandalous world of competitive mathematics in Renaissance Italy encouraged the development of our understanding of equations, algebra, and laid the foundations for our modern understanding of symmetry. Europe starts to wake up to what's been going on in the Arab world, in particular in the Renaissance, in the mid 1500s, when trade with Arabia is well established and around the Mediterranean there's a lot going on. And one of the things that's going on is Arabian mathematics and mathematical notations are being introduced to Europe. And this actually starts around 1200 and by 1540 or so it's really going pretty strong. And the Renaissance mathematicians pick up the story of the solution of equations from where the Greeks and Omar Khayyam left off, which was, well, we can do cubics, but we have to use conic sections, we have to use geometry. And the Renaissance mathematicians of Italy say, ah, we can do it better, we can do it by purely algebraic methods. And it's a complicated story, involving some very, very interesting and somewhat scandalous characters and one of the key features is at this period the way you made your public reputation as a mathematician was through kind of mathematical combat (laughs) be a bit like a wrestling match now but you do it you prove you're better at solving mathematical problems than the other person is Um, so two mathematicians would publicly set each other problems and see who could solve the other's problems. And even if the audience couldn't understand a word of how the solution went, they could count how many solutions people had got. It was a good spectator sport. This public contest between a couple of Renaissance mathematicians attracted the attention of the key figure in the whole thing, who was a very clever rogue gambler and scholar medical doctor and mathematician his name was girolamo cardano or jerome cardan he had decided to write himself a book on algebra the great art it was called and he wanted his book to be as up to date as possible and there was a public contest between a man called tartaglia which is a italian word meaning the stammerer it was a nickname and another mathematician called Antonio Fior. And Tartaglia wiped the floor with Fior because cubic equations in those days were seen as coming in several different types, which we would now say it was to do with whether certain numbers are positive or negative. But to them it meant totally different methods for solving them. Fior knew how to solve one type and Tartaglia knew how to solve several different types. So he set problems of a kind that he knew his opponent couldn't solve, and he could solve all of his opponent's problems. So no, so it was a complete whitewash. And Cardano thought, I want this stuff in my algebra book. So he went to see Tartaglia and said, you know, tell me how this solution works. And Tartaglia says, I can't tell you that, that's my trade secret. <laughs> you know, my entire reputation depends upon it. And Cardano says, well, no, OK, I won't put it in the book, but just out of interest, tell me. So Tartaglia tells him. Sometime later, Tartaglia picks up Cardano's algebra book, and there, with full credit to Tartaglia, is the way, method of solving cubic equations. And also a method for solving the next stage, fourth degree equations, which was discovered by a student of Cardano called Ferrari well, Tartaglia is really, really upset about this. Um, There's a lot of documentation surviving, nearly all of it written by Tartaglia. You don't know for sure whether it's true or not, but it's clear he's pretty upset. And he accuses Cardano of plagiarism and so on and so forth. But Cardano has a little bit of an excuse, and it's not just, but I gave you credit for it. It's actually, you weren't the first person to discover this. Because it turns out there was an earlier... Renaissance mathematician, Scipione del Ferro, who had solved cubics 30 years earlier, and had in fact passed on the method to his student, Fior, who was the one who had the fight with Tartaglia, the competition, but he only told Fior part of the story. So Cardano and his student, Ferrari, go off to find a man called Annibali del Nave, who has... The original papers of Del Ferro and they open up the manuscripts and they look through them and lo and behold there is the method for solving all of the different kinds of cubics. So Cardano's excuse for what he did was to say to Tata, "Look, I'm sorry uh, I didn't give away your secret I got this stuff from these earlier papers and so it's perfectly legitimate for me to publish it. And also he had a reason why he needed to publish it, was this wonderful discovery of his student Ferrari. Let's do the next case, the fourth-degree equation. How does it work? You manipulate a fourth-degree equation to turn it into a cubic equation, and then you solve that, and then you work your way to the answer to the fourth-degree equation. Now, if Cardano cannot publish how to solve cubics, He also cannot publish how to solve fourth degree equations, so he's really, really stuck. So he has motivation for breaking his word, but he has an excuse. On the whole, the verdict of history in the end is that Cardano is not such a rogue on that occasion. On other occasions he certainly was. He gambled away the family fortune, Uh, he slashed a man in the face during a... Uh, uh, w- w- when gambling because he thought he was cheating and he-, he gambled at cards, he gambled at dice and he gambled at chess which is very interesting, so you, you pick your wits as a chess player and for uh, for one period in his life he won a lot of money this way and then later on he lost everything and near the end of his life, in very tragic circumstances his eldest son was beheaded for murder oh, so this is, this is what you think the Renaissance Italy ought to be like <laughs> And it's not just affecting uh, the nobility, it's affecting the mathematicians. The important thing that comes out of Cardano's work is the whole idea of doing algebra. Even in Cardano's time, the symbolism for algebra is very rudimentary. It's not like we use nowadays. But they're getting the idea that you have Unknown quantities, you have known quantities, you have certain kinds of relations between them. You have various calculations you can do, usual operations of arithmetic, you can add things, you can multiply things, and you can take square roots, cube roots, fourth roots, fifth roots, that kind of thing. And it's all becoming systematised. Um, in fact, a, a successor of Cardano, Raphael Bombelli, who was actually an engineer working for the army, Um, In his spare time he wrote his own algebra book. And he wrote it because he found Cardano's book rather hard to understand. (laughs) Let's write a better book. And he took the whole subject a little bit further. He sorted out some technical issues which Cardano slightly slides over. And in fact with Bombelli we see the beginnings of the understanding that really strange things like the square root of minus one complex numbers, as we later called them, they're already showing up in very rudimentary form in Bombelli's work. And he's saying, I don't understand what this stuff means, but if we don't worry about that, you can use it and you can get sensible answers from it. So technically the accomplishments of the Renaissance period are advancing the solution of cubic and quartic fourth-degree equations which opens up the big, big unsolved problem that worries everybody else for several hundred years, which is the next step, quintic equations, fifth degree. But the other thing they do is essentially create algebra as a subject in its own right. When you look at the way the Renaissance algebra has solved cubic and quartic equations, and you compare it with the Babylonian method for solving quadratics... There's a pattern that seems to emerge. It's a very compelling pattern and it's a relatively straightforward pattern. What the Babylonians did to solve a general quadratic equation was they messed around with it and played around with the numbers and, and put various, we would say, you know, sort of change input certain terms on certain sides of the equation. They didn't think about it that way, but this is what they did until they got, an, until they turned it into something where you could just take a square root and solve the whole thing. What Cardano, Tartaglia and the other Renaissance mathematicians did with cubics was very similar. They messed around with the equation until you turned it into a quadratic equation, which you knew how to solve thanks to the Babylonians. But the solutions of that equation were not the unknown you wanted. They were the cube of the unknown. So if you then took a cube root you would get the unknown. So basically, mess around with the arithmetic a bit, take a square root, take a cube root, now you've got the answer. If you look at Ferrari's solution of the fourth degree equation, it boils down to mess around with the algebra, take a square root, take a cube root, take a fourth root, and now you've got the answer. Now, you don't have to be a genius to look at this and say, I know how to do quintics. We just have to mess around with the equations in the right way. And then we take a square root, then we take a cube root, then we take a fourth root, then we take a fifth root, and lo and behold, that's going to work. The trouble is, when you try and do that, what seems to be missing is how to mess around with the equations to begin with. You need to transform them into something that sets them up for this process of taking square, cube, fourth and fifth roots. And nobody could actually quite get them into the right shape to do that. They could come close. Some special cases you could solve. But something wasn't quite right. Something didn't seem to work. It wasn't so much you couldn't do the fifth route. You couldn't set the problem up so that fifth roots were relevant. And there is a slow realisation which starts out by dawning on one or two key figures who see what everyone else is missing and start saying, I wonder if this is possible. Could it be that the whole approach fails when we come to the quintic equation, the fifth degree equation? Could it be that just taking fifth roots and other things we know about isn't actually good enough to solve this? And there's a man called Rafini who writes a 500-page book saying, you can't solve it and I can prove you can't solve it. And it's such a long and complicated book that everyone else looks at this and says, I don't understand this. I'm not really prepared to wade my way through this. What will I get out of wading my way through this? I will understand that the problem is impossible anyway. And so people start saying, well, Ruffini has claimed a proof that it's impossible. And poor old Ruffini keeps he sort of writes in and says, I'm not claiming a proof, I've got a proof. And it turns out there is a bit of a gap in his proof, but actually he had the right idea. And that story is then taken up by Niels-Henrik Arbel, a Norwegian mathematician who dies of tuberculosis aged very young. And Arbel also writes mathematical papers saying it can't be solved. And here are reasons why it can't be solved. And what this does, that it's not the end of the Quintic because... Um, some quintic equations can't be solved some apparently can't there's a big question here how do you tell which is which what's the difference between them and that's what Galois takes up in the French Revolutionary period If you would like to find out more about the history of symmetry Professor Stewart's book Why Beauty is Truth is now available In our next episode, we uncover the tragic story of Evariste Galois and the development of group theory.